I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week I'm speaking with Forrest Hilton, who teaches political science at the National University of Colombia in Medellin, and is currently a visiting professor at the Federal University of Bahia in Salvador, Brazil. His books include Evil Hour in Colombia, and he's written a series of pieces over the last year and more for the LRB blog on the political situation in Colombia, Bolivia and Brazil. Most recently this week, on the continuing plight of his friend Victor Peña, who founded the Zenú Indigenous Council in Medellin, and is being persecuted by right-wing paramilitary groups. But today, we're mostly going to be talking about Brazil. Hello, Forrest, and thank you very much for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I suppose, let me just start, how does, how does Salvador compare to Medellin? Quite a, a change. It is dramatically different to the extent that so much of normal life apparently in Salvador continues with the exception, of course, of carnival, around which the regional economy is structured in part. But other than that, it, it's very difficult to kind of perceive the uh, the degree of distress that is actually underway in Brazil and concentrated in particular regions, of course. But it all seems very distant from kind of life on the ground in Salvador, which is at the same time clearly a, a greater struggle for the majority than it would be in normal times. So it's very strange in that regard. Colombia uh, is much more stark in almost every respect, and the kind of strict policies of quarantine and lockdown and the policing of those policies is what accounts for at least part of the difference. And in other parts in Brazil, as you mentioned, in Manaus and, and Sao Paulo, it's considerably worse than, than Salvador, which is relatively unaffected by, by the pandemic. The scenes that we witness here in Salvador of what's happening every day in Manaus are hard to they're hard to watch and they're hard to absorb because they're just of a completely different order of magnitude. And the same goes for Sao Paulo, really, and even Minas Gerais. But in the Amazon, you see on the nightly news lines of people, you know, stretching blocks that up to six hundred people waiting for a single bed in an intensive care unit. So, and, and of course, the, the shipping of patients out of the state to other areas where there is oxygen, the effort to, you know, break through transport bottlenecks and get enough oxygen into the state. This is really dramatic stuff that unfolds nightly and yet feels very distant from what's going on in Bahia, which is one of the states where cases are advancing, but at a rate that for now, um, allow kind of the, the, the public health system, which is universal, 
to buffer the blow. And is that partly because of the response of different state governments, that some state governors and state administrations have responded better than others? Because the federal government's response has been catastrophically non-existent or, or worse than non-existent in most respects. So, so this is really interesting in terms of kind of where it's played out most effectively. And I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say with any authority, but it, it does seem clear that the kind of level of opposition that the governor of Sao Paulo is dealing with uh, from the federal government is of a different order of magnitude than, say, the Bahian state government is dealing with from the federal government. Not that things in Bahia are looking good in that respect, but uh, Bolsonaro clearly sees Doria in Sao Paulo as a kind of political rival who's fair game to, to the extent that Doria is trying to take state-led initiatives to get people vaccinated and so forth on a different timeline uh, and a much faster timeline than the federal government has mapped out for Sao Paulo. He's met with unbelievable levels of obstructionism. And he even went on television to sort of try to appeal directly to the public about this the other day. So, you know, at least in the case of Sao Paulo, it's clear that political rivalry explains part of how much opposition from the federal government comes to state governors. It's, it's not that things in Bahia are going better. It's, it's more that the governor of Bahia, I don't think, is perceived as being nearly as, as large a threat to Bolsonaro as the governor of Sao Paulo. But to the extent that the government of Brasilia is opposing anything that state governors are trying to do on a large scale and is simply unable to, to kind of coordinate in any organized fashion, then, you know, all state governments are suffering. So if we go back in time a bit, a couple of years to, to Bolsonaro's election victory and when he became president, which was with the support of politicians like Doria, isn't that right? That before before the pandemic arrived, that some of those that Doria is a centre right right wing politician, and the extent to which Bolsonaro has lost some of that that support, and the reasons for that. So just today, Brazil's richest man, I forget his first name, Lehman, he uh, he expressed uh, nostalgia for the time of Temer, and one of the more kind of enlightened members uh, of the of the Brazilian military just came out and said that, you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a bad thing if Bolsonaro were to exit the scene and his vice president take over because, you know, clearly the president is mentally unstable. So I think it's safe to say that the coalition that that came together, that coalesced really around the coup, the parliamentary coup against uh, Dilma Rousseff, and then culminated with the election of Bolsonaro, there's been a considerable fracturing. So a number of supporters like Doria, but also Eduardo da Cunha, who I believe was head of the lower house and helped spearhead the impeachment of Dilma. He has essentially written a tell-all book about uh, the coup machinations, and he's named names about you know people in the current administration who were involved. But a lot of people who supported Bolsonaro, supported the coup against Dilma, have had second thoughts and, you know, have gotten cold feet. So there's no shortage of right-wing opposition or center-right-wing opposition to Bolsonaro from leading figures like Doria. And certainly when the richest man in Brazil expresses nostalgia for 
the previous regime, it means something. And a whole range of kind of journalists who supported pretty much every measure taken against Lula and supported the coup against Dilma and really, you know, paved the way for Bolsonaro's rise, which is to say Global and Folio de Sao Paulo, a number of um, kind of fairly conservative journalists at those outlets have come out against Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo. So in a way, kind of the broad elite consensus and middle class consensus that brought Bolsonaro to power has fractured under the, the, the pressure of the pandemic. But it seems not to matter very much because Bolsonaro has just cut a deal with the, the new head of the lower house of Congress, Arturo Lira, and Arturo Lira is, is nominally in charge of what's called the, the Centrão, which is a not a coalition really of parties, but it's a coalition of professional politicians within parties. And it's and it's kind of straightforwardly pork barrel politics. And the parties, most of them don't even really have ideological pretensions. It's it's kind of straightforward clientelist coalition. And Bolsonaro has has successfully more or less cut a deal with them for now, meaning that there won't be any impeachment of Bolsonaro, even though there's been a lot of talk about it and no lack of kind of viable pretext for impeaching Bolsonaro. But it's not going to happen. And, you know, it appears that the military may have to give up some ministries so that the politicians at the Centrão can occupy them because, you know, very large budgets are at stake and kind of fiefdoms within the state are at stake. Um, and it's also true that not even during the military dictatorship in Brazil, Brazil from 1964 to 1985, did the military see the need to have a general running the Ministry of Health. As, as is currently happening. Exactly. This is, this is an innovation of, of Bolsonaro's. And there's also apparently some discussion within the military about whether this even is a good idea there's discussion about the extent to which the current occupant of the Ministry of Health, uh, General Pasuelo, is himself damaging to the images uh, of the Brazilian armed forces um, because his handling of the pandemic has been so disastrous. And there appears, I'm not sure how many months in advance the Brazilian federal government had warning about what was going to happen in Manaus if there wasn't you know, oxygen brought into the region. But at least as early as September, uh, a Brazilian doctor's organization, September 2019, notified the federal government. I've seen reports that the federal government had eight months of advance notice. And of course, you know, the local government authorities in the Amazon and mayor's offices had been alerting the federal government that they were going to run out of oxygen, that the health system was going to collapse again. And, you know, it had no impact whatsoever. So, it could be the case that the, this mismanagement of the pandemic is bringing kind of discredit on the Brazilian armed forces because there's a keystone cops aspect to almost every component of the production of vaccines, the transport of vaccines, and then the transport of oxygen. Really, everything has just been sort of disastrous and before the lights and TV cameras. So it's it's rather difficult for anyone to, to cover it up or to spin it as something other than utter catastrophe. So the health situation remains really dire. And the fear is that regions that where cases are, are increasing, but increasing at a steady rate rather than increasing at an accelerated rate, 
may soon begin accelerating. And, you know, then essentially the entire country of Brazil could easily be kind of in the red zone. And I don't think the situation has been this critical probably since about last July. And these, the reorganisation in Parliament, the Bolsonaro getting that support from politicians and a bit of shuffling in the cabinet is not going to make any difference to the to the lives of millions of Brazilians. Yeah, yeah no, certainly not in terms of, of, of health and how the Brazilian government is approaching the pandemic. I mean, one of Bolsonaro's latest tirades was telling the European countries that, you know, Brazil was really suffering because they had a lot of vaccines and Brazil had very few. You know, that's that's not the kind of thing that is going to motivate European governments to do something about Brazil's lack of vaccines. Nobody really wants to work with the Bolsonaro government anyway. So it's clear that they don't really have a plan or a strategy to deal with other than obstruction of state government initiatives to deal with it, to make sure that no no governors are too big for their bridges. But one thing that he has done is the cash handouts, although that was an initiative from the from the PT, wasn't it, from Lula's, Lula's party, um, that the poorest Brazilians are getting $600 a month. Is that is it $600 a month or, I know, or, have a, or how often it is? And that is making some kind of difference. I think that the, the figure that they settled on was 600 reais per, per month. So it was like about $100 per month. And, you know, the initial kind of lowball figure was considerably lower than that. And that was what the economy minister wanted to go with. And the PT managed to to raise the the floor uh, very quickly. And ironically, that is what explains Bolsonaro's still kind of shockingly high levels of popularity. And if not popularity, at least we could say pretty low levels of disapproval, given how disastrously he's been handling this. So the figure I've seen is that almost 70 million people benefited from these cash transfer programs, these emergency cash transfer programs. And now that there's been the sort of reshuffling in Congress and a a considerable amount of horse trading, it appears that those payments will continue. I think it might be a one-time payment now instead of uh, repeating payments. And they're trying to set up a whole range of kind of conditions so that they can basically cut the number of people receiving these subsidies in half. I think that's that's the plan. But nevertheless, you know, if if there's 35 million people benefiting from these emergency cash transfer programs, that's still considerable in terms of support. And it does seem that Bolsonaro's kind of 32, 33 percent fanatical following is immovable. Uh, and it doesn't matter what he does or doesn't do or says or doesn't say, you know, he's going to have rock solid support from them. And I think it, it might be too much to say that it's it's the evangelical churches that provide the infrastructure because certainly kind of paramilitary militias and their links with politicians and, and businessmen also provide another kind of parallel infrastructure to which Bolsonaro's sons are intimately connected so there's a range, I guess, of different sort of far right wing infrastructures that that prop Bolsonaro up kind of no matter what he does and that really don't depend on electoral uh, vicissitudes or the, the sort of palace intrigues of Brazilian politics. And there is going to be a presidential election next year, isn't there? And do you, is, is Bolsonaro going to win that, do you think? Are his chances of winning quite strong? So what you hear frequently is that, yes, 
that it's going to be very difficult to defeat him. Uh, Lula is, is interestingly, I guess, somewhat similar to Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina and somewhat similar to Rafael Correa in Ecuador in that these former presidents pretty much designate who's going to be on the slate or who's going to be the candidate for the opposition. And so it's going to be uh, Fernando Hadaji, the former mayor of Sao Paulo, again on the PT ticket. And I'm pretty sure Hadaji picked up 46% of the vote in 2018, which was most impressive given that he didn't actually make it onto the ticket until very late in the day. So Lula has picked him to run again. And with Lula campaigning, you know, possibly that makes some kind of difference and possibly they get closer to 50%. But pessimism uh, seems to reign supreme about the PT's chances. And this pessimism comes mostly from people who would like to see the PT reelected and like to see Bolsonaro out. So here in Salvador, the number of uh, Bolsonaristas who are kind of uh, loud about it is very, very small. He didn't win a single district in the city, although the, the former mayor, ACM Neto here in Salvador, and his protege is the current mayor, they are uh, Bolsonaristas. So it's, it's a little curious to me to understand exactly how a city that did not support Bolsonaro in a single district would then elect uh, Bolsonarista mayor. But the bottom line is you don't hear very much loud expressions of support for Bolsonaro here in Salvador. And overwhelmingly, people talk about how kind of dramatic the crisis is, how loathsome the federal government is, and, and how kind of astonishingly incompetent and corrupt its response to the pandemic and the economic crisis has been. And, and yet that's almost immediately followed by despair about any alternative. There's certainly here in Salvador and Bahia, there's very little excitement around the candidacy of Fernando Hadaji. And the critique I've heard most often of Hadaji and the kind of PT elite is that they really are a kind of intellectual izquierda de caviar, uh, a caviar left. And I think what that refers to is that there's a lot of them come from university backgrounds and there's a sort of overrepresentation to some degree of intellectuals in the PT and in, on the Brazilian left in general, and that intellectuals currently have very little kind of articulation with popular constituencies, with popular political discourses, that there's, that there's a really dramatic disconnect between this kind of intellectual and political elite in places like Sao Paulo. On the other hand, we saw in the most recent mayoral contest for Sao Paulo the rise of uh, Guillermo Bolus, who's the leader of a left-wing party, the PSOL, which comes out of the PT. And perhaps one of the most impressive things about his leadership has been absolute refusal of sectarianism with respect to the PT. He was, he was with Lula at the Metal Workers Union headquarters before Lula went into prison. He was with Lula when Lula got out of prison. Lula has sort of baptized him as, you know, a, a very important future leader for Brazil at the national level. And he came in second for the mayoral race of Sao Paulo and picked up, I think, 42% of the vote. Um, don't quote me on that, but it, it was significant. And, you know, certainly someone like, like Bolos has a much clearer sense of basically grassroots organizing and work as a result of his own background in the 
the movement of people without a roof over their head is the Brazilian word for the term, which is kind of the counterpart to the landless, landless rural workers movement. So Bolos in Sao Paulo has really a different background and a different ability to communicate with o povo brasileiro, as the, as the populist phrase has it, right? There's, there's the idea that there's a Brazilian people out there that speak a certain language, and, and somebody like Lula clearly was able to speak the same language with a trade unionist twist. But someone like Hadaji really can't speak that language and is not a demagogue and is not an opportunist and therefore doesn't try to pass himself off as something that he's not. But the sense is that somebody like Hadaji is not going to be up to the task of defeating Bolsonaro. And to be fair, it's not clear that Bolos would be up to the task either. But I think Lula's outsized influence on kind of strategy, tactics, and leadership on the Brazilian left explains some of what's going on. His, his individual strength is kind of paradoxically, or perhaps not paradoxically, it's a reflection of overall organizational weakness and, and lack of kind of popular constituency, I think. But the difference that he was in prison in 2018 and now he's he's free to campaign, and the, but even say that wouldn't be enough to necessarily swing it. And the, the other thing that Bolsonaro said last month after the events in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January, isn't it right that he said under similar circumstances in, in Brazil, something worse, he said something worse would happen if he were to, to lose the election? And is that is that a genuine threat? Would he would he stage a military coup? Would the military back him in that? That's really the question: is is what kind of support? What what are the factions within the Brazilian military, and and kind of how does the balance of power among these factions shift? And I haven't really seen much reporting on this subject, so it's it's something of a black box. Um, uh, I suppose there are analysts out there who who know who know enough about the Brazilian military to know. But it seems that regardless of how outlandish his antics are and regardless of how counterproductive both uh, his discourse and his institutional practice often is, Bolsonaro hasn't faced significant challenges from the military or significant threats from the military. And if he hasn't faced any such kind of challenge or threat Thus far, it's not easy to envision what would then produce, you know, sort of significant opposition from the Brazilian military. If it hasn't happened yet, I don't know what would do it. So I think, you know, underlying a lot of the pe- pessimism about Hadaji and the, and the chances of the PT, I think there's also kind of a, a fatalistic recognition that Bolsonaro hasn't lost the support of at least the majority of those who hold the levers of power within the Brazilian armed forces, and therefore he is sort of immovable. And Hidaji himself just came out the other day saying, well, you know, Brazil's not really a democracy yet. It's still basically kind of run by the military, and the military still has ultimate say over who can do what. So there's a pretty, I think, strong sense of, of fatalistic pessimism with respect to Bolsonaro being allowed to continue essentially no matter what he does, because nothing he's done so far has really ruffled that many feathers among those who seem to be in a position to to do something about it within the Brazilian military. Unlike a number of leading politicians such as Doria, leading columnists for Folha de São Paulo or for Globo, 
you know, individual figures and personalities from the Brazilian right and center right have been very vocal in their opposition. And there's, you know, an increasing number of them. But that doesn't translate into any organizationally effective opposition to Bolsonaro, um, not in the in Congress and certainly not in the streets, because if it's true that popular mobilization in Brazil was pretty weak uh, before Bolsonaro was elected, which is to say during the period when Dilma was being overthrown and thereafter, there was very little popular protest and mobilization in Brazil compared to any number of countries in South America. And if that was true before the pandemic hit, it's it's even more so the case today that, you know, there's there's almost nothing in the way of significant social movement uh, mobilization in opposition to the Bolsonaro government. Now, there have been some kind of caravans of people in cars in major cities uh, calling for Bolsonaro's ouster, but they haven't really generated so far any any significant momentum. And it does seem that the kind of desperation of people's day-to-day circumstances in the pandemic, both in terms of public health and in terms of kind of economic sustenance day-to-day, has meant that there's almost no space for that kind of mass oppositional politics in the streets right now. So there's a way in which the Brazilian left is kind of of necessity in retreat right now. But I think it's fair to say it's also in, in complete disarray in terms of what some, some potential way out of the current impasse might look like. And in terms of the, the international context, the regime change in Washington, Trump's departure, what implications does that have for, for Brazil? You know, this is... I think the question can be extended. Brazil is obviously the most important case along with Mexico in terms of U.S. policy in Latin America. But I think I think the question can legitimately be extended to Latin America and the Caribbean as a whole. And I saw a pretty good response from um, Professor of International Relations in Rio or Sao Paulo saying that in spite of Biden's relatively loud bark you know, on the issue of environment and presumably human rights, indigenous rights in particular, from the Biden administration, the the bite is likely to be non-existent. So the prediction from this one analyst was that there'll be a lot of uh, scolding and, and kind of public slaps on the wrist and this sort of thing, but very little kind of policy with teeth, which is to say, you know, there won't be much in the way of consequences probably for Bolsonaro if he refuses to kind of fall in line. So I guess it comes down to some degree to imports of Brazilian beef, soy, and timber. You know, those are the main products. And the kind of leverage that the Biden administration is uh, willing to use in order to kind of compel the Bolsonaro government to move in a different direction. And as I said, it, it seems most likely to stay at the level of discourse, rhetoric, and symbolism and seems very unlikely to move into the realm of uh, policies with teeth and actual consequences. So, so far, you know, it seems like Biden's approach is to try to get multilateral, save the Amazon kind of initiative going that would involve presumably private funds as well as public funds in order to, you know, conserve as much of the Amazon as possible. But given the role of kind of agribusiness, 
in the Ministry of Agriculture in Brazil and in the Ministry of Environment in Brazil. I mean, the, the, the official kind of theory in the circles of power in Brasilia, as well as the regions where ag agribusiness is, is huge, is that this is a giant left-wing conspiracy against Brazil, orchestrated internationally by NGOs. And, and the recent dossier, a 31-page document that um, leading academics and um, heads of NGOs sent to the Biden administration about Brazil policy it is, is for you know, the, the agro-industrial lobby and the, uh, the people who negate climate change as an issue, this is a sort of smoking gun for them, which proves that you know, liberal academics are actually communists in disguise and that NGOs, also liberal, are secretly communist and that this kind of dossier, insisting that, that Biden really take human rights seriously and environmental consequences of uh, Brazilian agro-industry seriously is, is tantamount to a kind of communist plot against Brazil, and that it's global, uh, that it's an international conspiracy to make Brazil look bad, to turn Brazil into pariah and outcast. So there's a kind of reactionary nationalism that's very powerful in the agro-industrial regions, but also in Brazil, that thinks that defiance is the appropriate response to any pressure from the U.S. government or from European governments or civil society organizations that by no means should Brazil give in to this kind of what they consider to be environmental blackmail. So there could be a, a significant amount of obstructionism within the Bolsonaro administration to any kind of progressive reforms that Biden says he wants to see happen in Brazil. It's not clear to me unless, or, or I should say, it's not clear to me in the absence of you know policies that have actual consequences for incompliance, what mechanism, you know, the Biden government would use in order to compel Bolsonaro to take human rights seriously, indigenous rights and, and Afro-Brazilian rights as well. And in addition to trade and, and the environment, there's also the issue of kind of military cooperation and even sort of explorations of outer space because uh, the Brazilian government wants to expropriate land that belongs to historically Afro-Brazilian communities, which have rights under the Constitution to uh, use this land in a way that does not involve uh, carving it up into private property. But um, the federal government seems to be going in, uh, in opposite directions where you know, they want to expropriate that sort of land. They want to undertake and will undertake oil exploration in national parks and uh, national forests and that sort of thing. So, you know, the disruption is already accelerating, given the kind of current setup within the Brazilian Congress and its relationship to the executive. And although there are members of the U.S. Congress who have an interest in these issues, and although particularly climate and environment are likely to take sort of center stage at the discursive and rhetorical and symbolic level, it, it really is not at all clear how the U.S. government would bring the Brazilian government to heel, but it's also not clear that they see it as more than a public relations problem, which is to say that whenever human rights policy uh, between the U.S. and Latin America or, or U.S. human rights policy towards Latin America becomes an issue for the State Department and even for the military sometimes, it's perceived as an issue of public relations rather than 
sort of dramatic situations that need to be improved. Uh, what needs to be improved is the perception of these situations. And so a lot of resources and energy are devoted to changing public perception around the issues rather than coming up with policies that would actually lead to any not significant change, even moderate change. But but moderate change is possible in theory or even in practice that under Lula, not only was there a modest reduction in inequality in Brazilian society, but also the rate of deforestation was slowed. I mean, obviously, under the current, under the Bolsonaro government, it's impossible. But how is how is Lula able to to do that in the face of the agribusiness lobby and of those incredibly powerful interests? How how did Lula manage to make the the modest gains that he did? I think, to a certain degree, you know, because of the diplomatic initiatives of the Lula government on the world stage. I mean, Brazil was an important player and perceived as one of the most progressive players on the world stage when Lula was president. Ironically, it gave Brazil perhaps more room for maneuver domestically to try these progressive policies. So their strength, the Brazilian government's strength under Lula internationally translated into a certain domestic strength as well. And I think the other piece of that was Lula and the PT's ability to cut all sorts of temporary deals with the powers that be in the status quo that allowed them to continue to win elections, but obviously in the medium term kind of came undone and certainly agribusiness took its revenge. So I guess the the answer to that would be that it was a kind of highly contingent um, conjuncture where commodity prices were high. That was certainly part of it. There was a certain amount of redistribution that could take place in Brazil under those conditions and and a certain amount of environmental regulation as well in the sense that profits are still going to be made and we are going to sort of comply with environmental regulations and goals that we have and that these are not mutually exclusive. And that probably could only have been the case at that time and under that government. And in a way, what that points to is the extent to which I think domestic factors and clashes and struggles within Brazil ultimately determines how these things play out, precisely because the U.S. government is not willing or able to design any more progressive policies and design mechanisms of uh, compliance and implementation, which they could easily do, obviously. I mean, the, the power that they have over military aid in and of itself would probably be enough to compel changes. It's not, it's not an, an inability to compel changes from the Brazilian government. But the way that U.S. policy towards Latin America tends to work, the continuities far outweigh any changes. And even where you might expect some, some progressive changes, they, they tend not to happen when it comes to Latin America. So, I mean, ultimately... I think it comes down much more to the jockeying in Brasilia and between, you know, the states and and the federal government in Brazil than anything the U.S. will end up doing or saying, because the continuities in U.S. policy, I think, are likely to be much greater than the ruptures, even if that is not true at the discursive and symbolic. And I suppose that's, yeah, if we look at something, someone like Bolivia, where there is the the right-wing coup at the end of 2019 and that the ability of the the left to democratically take back power in Bolivia was you know no no thanks to the US and no help from the US that that the the US has literally zero track record of supporting progressive governments in Latin America 
ever, do they? I mean, if the choice is between a, a fascist and a someone and a socialist, they'll, they'll back the fascists, and that's still true. Yeah, it's still true, <laughs> and it has been for you know roughly a century. And to a large degree, every time progressive nationalism of any stripe has reared its head since about a century ago, it has been labeled an instance of communism that ought to be stamped out. So progressive governments tend to be surprised at how little support they're able to drum up in Washington under allegedly progressive administrations. And I've heard Lula speak about this with respect to Obama and the expectations they had for the Obama administration uh, after, you know, the long night of the Bush administration and how those expectations were were dashed almost immediately. And, and Lula was really surprised that uh, Obama expanded, you know, sort of the, the number of theaters of war. It wasn't, it, that was not in line with how he imagined things to work with a progressive administration in Washington. But if you look back across the entire history of the Cold War, and you can date the Cold War, you know, as it's conventionally dated from the late 1940s, or in the case of Latin America, you can probably extend it back to about the 1920s and the U.S. efforts to combat the most progressive tendencies within the Mexican Revolution. What you see is that the U.S. tends to strengthen these these really reactionary elements at, at moments when popular forces demanding change are, are surging. Now, in the case of Bolivia, I think one of the things that is decisive for how elections played out last fall and the difference between Bolivia and Brazil, I mean, there's a number of differences. Of course, the scale is not comparable, but, but there are also clearly some, some parallels. And Evo Morales' party, the different social movements that uh, support that party to the extent that they maintain independence and autonomy as social movements, they really, without declaring a kind of total break or rupture with Evo Morales, they somehow kind of claimed the progressive aspects of Morales's time in office and identified, you know, strove to re-articulate the party, at least discursively and symbolically, in line with the most progressive tendencies of his administration and his party, and an effort to actually remake the party and remake administration of the Bolivian government and moving away from the kind of dependence on Evo Morales as the leading figure. This has not happened in Brazil with respect to Lula. And so I think the degree of kind of independence and autonomy that was to a large degree forced on Evo Morales' pardon by the fact of Morales being in exile as a result of this fascist coup led to significant kind of renovation and to some degree rejuvenation, although Arce was the economy minister, I think, for 14 years. So he was very much an administration insider, but again, perceived as somebody much more associated with economic success stories while Morales was president and less associated with kind of hardball clientelist politics that the Morales administration played extremely well for a long time. So I think that's that's somewhere where we see a pretty dramatic difference between the Brazilian and the Bolivian left is that, you know, the, the Brazilian left still is to some degree dependent on Lula as a figure. And yet Lula, for any number of reasons, is really somewhat of a shadow of the figure that he was when he was president and before he was jailed and so on and so forth. So um, there's a clear weakness at the level of, of what is referred to as caudillismo, 
uh, within Latin American politics. And it's not unique to Brazil, but Brazil seems to offer a pretty stark case of um, individual brilliance and organizational weakness. And that didn't happen. I mean, was Lula's imprisonment could have been an opportunity for that to happen, equivalent to Morales's exile, or but for whatever reason, it didn't. I think that's right. And and clearly, you know, Lula shows has shown in his in any number of interviews the kind of self criticisms and and kind of deep reflection on the PT's time in power, what led to its overthrow, and the relationship of kind of the right wing advance and onslaught to previous patterns in Brazilian history. So, you know, Lula himself was certainly open to rethinking a number of premises of his own thought and and previous action. And yet, certainly no one kind of could, the sense that no one could substitute for Lula was very strong. And the sense that as long as Lula was in prison, the Brazilian left was somehow orphaned, was equally strong. And expectations when he was released were quite high that, you know, OK, Lula's going to hit the streets now and he's going to start to mobilize people. And, you know, the, the things are going to begin to move in another direction. And, and that hasn't happened at all. And it is not only because of uh, the onset of the pandemic. But there's no question that the onset of the pandemic has made organizing quite a bit more difficult and At the same time, we see that in Bolivia, where conditions for organizing and winning an election were also incredibly difficult as a result of the pandemic and the government mismanagement of it, you know, Bolivian social movement organizations and Evo Morales' party uh, regrouped and and came back to power uh, in a way that was pretty convincing um, and overwhelming. So, yeah, the contrast remains. So does that mean sort of Bolos 2026 is the... Best hope for Brazil, or is you know, it's it's it will be interesting to see what kind of recomposition takes place uh, within the Brazilian left, and above all, what kind of protest and mobilization emerges from below in progressive directions coming out of the pandemic. So you know, I think those are the variables. The last time we saw significant mobilization, kind of progressive mobilization from below. I'm pretty sure it was 2013, and it was quickly sort of taken over and then monopolized to a large degree by the middle class and the upper middle class. And, you know, that paved the way for Dilma's overthrow as well as the rise of Bolsonaro. So it's been quite a long time since we've seen any real significant marches and rallies and so forth in the streets of Brazil's major cities. And, you know, it's not clear when that will happen again. But something will have to happen at that level in order to produce a kind of reshuffling of the Brazilian left as a whole or a recasting of the Brazilian left as a whole. So, I mean, right now it it seems that things are kind of paralyzed. This is a real sense of, of gridlock and rigor mortis on almost every level. And the only movement that appears to be happening is is largely regressive. And there's really no end in sight to that dynamic. So I, I think what's remarkable about being here now is comparing it to, to what it was like in, say, 2012 and the, the kind of optimism that prevailed in the, in the late Lula years and, and into the early Dilma years about Brazil finally 
kind of coming into its own on the world stage, finally making significant strides on issues of environment, human rights, distribution of, uh, of income, no matter how mild, you know, it was still a milestone, um, you know, in terms of redistribution. So, I mean, Brazil at that time kind of displayed an optimism and a confidence that was, that was absolutely stunning. And now the sense that the country is in free fall with no end in sight and kind of at a level that maybe doesn't have any historical parallel, um, even for people who lived through the dictatorship, this seems to be vertigo of an entirely different order. The kind of the outlook is very bleak, and Brazilians, in my admittedly limited experience, are not really given to kind of bleak outlooks and, and have an almost, I suppose, miraculous faith that somehow things are going to work out in the future. Uh, the mechanism is never clear, but the faith is often unshakable. And it seems as though what's happened in the last four or five years or so has, has shaken a lot of people's faith. And, and that sense that no matter what, things will get better, I would say, is not, is not nearly as present as, as, it, as it has been in much of the 21st century. I suppose you have to hope that if the descent has accelerated when it does turn up again, that the, the rebound is accelerated as well. Because, in this, I mean, there isn't, there isn't time for, for the indigenous communities where children are dying of COVID and, you know, the Amazon, I mean, bluntly, with no Amazon rainforest, there's no oxygen and we're all dead. So in that sense, the, the, sort of the, fate of, the fate of the world depends on this. So The stakes are incredibly high. What happens in Brazil really matters for what happens in the world. And it also obviously holds up a mirror to some of the, the, the darker and more disturbing aspects of the contemporary world. And the pandemic has been remarkable for that, if nothing else. Forrest Hilton, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tom. Nice to talk to you. You can read Forrest Hilton's pieces on Brazil, Bolivia and Colombia on the LRB blog, where other recent pieces include Lindsay McGoey on GameStop, Hugh Pennington on Perverse Genetics and Angelique Richardson on Profiteering in Wars and Pandemics. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.